Well, good morning, fellowship. Good to see you today. I'm going to launch my PowerPoint on the screen and hope it takes. And we'll get rolling. All right. Well, some of you this morning uh, are kind of saying to yourself, who's this guy? And uh, let me answer that question for you. If you haven't, uh, if, if you've not been coming to fellowship for a prolonged period of time, I'm a new face to you, so allow me to introduce myself to you. Uh, I am one of the elders here at fellowship. My name is Mike Vogt. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, fellowship in the summer is a little bit like a box of chocolates. You never know who you're going to get. You'd be right. In the summer, we try to give our lead teaching pastors a bit of a break from time to time. We like to have them enjoy the warm weather, take some vacation time, be with their family, recharge their batteries, so to speak, so that they can come back when when, uh, school gets back and they are refreshed. So I am delighted to be able to uh, join you this morning, and we are going to forge on into the Gospel of John in our time together this morning. Now, uh, when I am asked uh, to teach, uh, one of the things that I do is I will, my pattern is I will generally send an email to either Rob or Lloyd. And I'll say, hey, can you shoot me, you know, two or three commentaries from the, from the commentators that you respect on the passage that I'm going to be teaching just so I can start seeing what some of the commentators are saying about this text. My passage today is John 13 verses 1 through 20. Normally when I send that request, I get an email back that's got a Word document that's like 15 or 17 pages or something like that. The email came back from from Rob Sweet with a 64-page Word document. (laughs) And to quote Rob, here you go, Mike. You've got an incredibly rich and dense text for that morning. Good luck. (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, I'm grateful for having a rich and dense text this morning. I am grateful to be able to be your ambassador uh, from the pulpit here at Fellowship Bible today. Lord, I pray that you allow me to be a skilled and able communicator. Uh, But more than that, Lord, that I would simply be a vessel for you to show up this morning. Uh, I know, Lord, your spirit is here among us. There are way more than two or three gathered. And I just ask that you would have a divine appointment with Fellowship Bible Church Brentwood right now. So Lord, as we open the text and we go to your word, we ask that we'd be changed because of our time together here this morning. In your name, amen. So if you haven't done so already, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John 13. If you've got one of these fancy purple books, you're going to page 82. And uh, again, we've got 20 verses this morning, and it shouldn't seem like that's a lot, but we're going to move at a fast pace because there's a lot of meat in this text this morning. Here's what I learned as I was getting ready for today. Almost every Bible commentator that I looked at, they classify the book of John into two parts. And you wouldn't know this by simply reading through your Bible or working through this purple book. You wouldn't realize that when you turn from John 12 to John 13, there's a significant change in what we're looking at. John 1 through 12, according to the Bible commentators, they call this the book of signs. The book of signs. This is Jesus with an outward focus, with a very public ministry, so to speak. And Jesus is reaching out into Israel, uh, providing miraculous signs to the various men and women that he encounter to give evidence of his identity. He is looking for those who will believe in him. 
The book of signs, again, is broad focused. It's outward focused. And the first 12 chapters of the gospel of John, if we want to look at it from a time perspective, this represents roughly three years in Jesus' life. 12 chapters, three years. Now, as soon as we turn over to today's text, what, now what we're into now from John 13 to John 19 is sort of the next major section of the text. Commentators call this the book of glory. The book of glory. And now when we look at this, uh, you will see that this is more of Jesus' private ministry. He's investing in those who, has, who have already chosen to believe in him. The first 12 chapters outward, the next seven chapters Inward, He has truly narrowed his focus and he's investing in those who have already chosen to follow him. And this part rattled me when I learned this. The first 12 chapters are three years. The next seven chapters, 24 hours. Time slows down in this next section of John. It's incredible. He is moving at a snail's pace for this next seven chapters because he wants us to get it. He wants us to see with incredible detail what Jesus is conveying to those who are closest to him in the final 24 hours before the cross. Amazing. Now, it's, for me, I was almost baffled that the first 12 chapters is three years. You can tell that John is really only hitting the highlights of Jesus' life. In fact, if you skip ahead to the very last verse in the entire Gospel of John, he basically says so much. He says, listen, I've only touched on the highlights of this. In fact, if everything were written down that Jesus said and did, the whole world could not contain all the books. Probably a little hyperbole, I understand. But John is saying, I'm only catching the highlights in this guy's life, as evidenced by the fact that we can spend seven chapters on 24 hours. All right, enough preamble. Let's dig in. Uh, the first section of John 13, I'll just affectionately call the prologue. Let's read through this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. All right, a uh, few observations in the prologue. The first is this. Um, John offers us somewhat of a timestamp in the texture, so we kind of know what we're looking at in terms of uh, the chronological time. It is just before the Feast of Passover, it's not the Feast of Passover. This is the Passover meal before Passover begins. Passover officially will begin tomorrow at sunset. This is the meal before that, okay? The, the dinner uh, prior to that. Now, as an aside, if you've been counting as we've been going through the Gospel of John, this is the third Passover that John references. The first one was in John chapter 2, verse 13. The second one was in John 6, verse 4. And the third one is here. So just as an aside, for those of you that love Bible trivia, this is why we believe Jesus' ministry was approximately three years. We can count three separate Passover events in the Gospel of John. Now, what is Passover? Passover. 
you may already be familiar with this, but in case you're not, let me just hit this briefly. The Jews have celebrated the Passover festival every year since the Passover event occurred way back in their history. Now, you might remember the story in the Exodus uh, where God sent a series of plagues to Egypt. And God sent a series of plagues to Egypt to try to convince Pharaoh to release the Hebrew slaves. The last and most profound of all the plagues was what we would now call Passover. The final plague was that the firstborn of every child in each household in Egypt would die unless a spotless lamb was slaughtered and its blood was painted on the doorposts and on the lintel of the home. And if that was the case, the angel of death would pass over your house and your firstborn would be spared. That's where the term Passover comes from. Now, if you look at how the blood was applied to the household, it's not difficult to kind of see the symbolism of this. Remember, Passover lambs, they were slaughtered in the afternoon and the blood had to be applied to the door before sundown. Tomorrow, uh, in this timeline of Jesus, tomorrow in Israel, Passover lambs will be slaughtered in the afternoon at the same time that Jesus himself will go to the cross. And you can see by where the blood is applied, it's not hard to visualize the nails and the crown of thorns. You can see why, of course, Jesus is considered the, the uh, spotless lamb that was slain, literally the last Passover lamb that would be needed. Okay, that's observation number one. This is the timestamp. Number two, uh, let's talk about the hour. Uh, John makes very clear that Jesus knows that his hour had come. If I counted right, there is six times prior to this where Jesus references that he knew that his hour had not yet come. But we see in the text this morning now, and even Lloyd alluded to this last week, Jesus knows that his hour is upon him. Now you need to realize, every time that John references the hour, he's talking about the cross. There is one major reason for which Jesus Christ comes, and that is to die. The hour is Calvary. Jesus will come to die for the sins of man and for the justice of God and he will then go to his grave and he will rise in victory. The awaited hour for this to take place has come. Observation number three. I just call this love and majesty. I love the wording of this sort of introduction to the second half of the Gospel of John. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then jump down to verse three. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. If you think back to John chapter one, when John is introducing his gospel in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Skip forward to verse 14. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. 
There's a sense of who Jesus is, where he came from, where he's going. And now in the second sort of bookend for the second half of the Gospel of John, there's another acknowledgement of who Jesus is, where he came from, and to where he is going again. It's just a wonderful poetic um, introduction to the second part of the book of John. Now, I'm not going to touch on verse 2, and for those of you who love expository preaching, that's going to frustrate you because I'm not taking these in order this morning, okay? Um, But I don't want you to call the expository police on me just yet. We're going to get there, but you're going to find in our text this morning, there's actually three separate references to Judas Iscariot in our text this morning, and I'm going to take them all in one bundle towards the end, okay? Let's move on. Let's talk foot washing. Jesus, it says in the text, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If you step back from this and you don't look at this at the ground level view, look at this more from sort of the 30,000 foot view. Let Let me say this verse to you a little bit differently. A divine being lays aside his robe. He takes upon himself the towel of a servant and he removes the filth of men. When he was finished, he casts aside the towel covered in filth, puts back on his divine robe and resumes his place. What does that sound like? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. At a 30,000 foot view, we're seeing a snapshot of a greater image in our text this morning. Well, let's talk about the ground level view of this text. Let's talk about the what and the why of foot washing. First of all, what, why foot washing? What's the reason why this existed? Well, foot washing was a courtesy uh, that was performed upon the entry into a Israeli household. Keep in mind, back in this time, walking is pretty much your only form of transportation. Unless you're like a general in the army or a dignitary, you're getting around on your feet. And uh, you're not sporting Nikes. Uh, You're wearing sandals, as I see some of the ladies are in the front row here today. You're wearing sandals, which means that dust and dirt and mud, they're gonna come up onto your feet. Now, walking dirt roads at this time, it's not just dust and dirt that are gonna be on your feet. If I can be graphic, the roads were shared by animals. And so there's more than dust and dirt that are on your feet from time to time. And let's just say you don't want to track all of that goodness into the household that you're visiting. So how do you prevent that? Well, customarily, your feet are washed upon entry into a Jewish household. So who would do this? Well, foot washing in the ancient world was clearly a necessary task, but it was a very menial one, and it was very degrading. The task of doing this fell to the lowliest of the low. This is a servant or a slave who would do this. And even on the organizational chart of the slaves, it would be the lowest ranking of the slaves that would do this. In fact, in one of the commentators that Rob sent me as I was reading about this, uh, this commentator said that in certain regions of Israel, Jewish slaves were actually forbidden to do this task. Why? they made a Gentile slave do this because of Levitical law. The Jew would come in close contact with that which was considered ceremonially unclean. And so in in some regions of Israel, even Jews couldn't do this. It was so lowly. But look at what happens in our text. 
Jesus rises from supper. Now, why is he rising from supper? Clearly, the feet weren't washed upon entry into this household. Why? Doesn't say. But maybe there was no servant, there were no slaves. Uh, maybe no one gathered felt it was their job to do this task. But Jesus rises from supper. He grabs a towel and he begins washing the disciples' feet. Now, I don't think I can overstate the significance and the shock value of what Jesus just is about to do. Guys, this would be so jarring, so socially inappropriate, so unexpected that the disciples would not have known how to respond. They would not have known what to do in this moment. In fact, one of the commentators I read, a guy named D.A. Carson says this, he says, what makes the fourth gospel account so extraordinary is that there is no parallel in extant ancient literature of a person of superior status who voluntarily washes the feet of someone of inferior status. Jesus' act therefore represents an assault on the usual notions of social hierarchy. It was a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. It's not just an honored teacher who is performing a shameful act, but a divine figure with sovereignty over the cosmos who has taken on the role of a slave. Wow. Now, Jesus is serving his disciples by assuming the posture of a slave. And most of the disciples at the table, again, would have sat there in stunned silence and disbelief until he got to Peter. Who says this? He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand, but afterwards you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter then said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Do you ever wonder what the New Testament would be like without Peter? <laughs> he adds so much personality, so much flair to the New Testament narrative. Like the entertainment value is one thing, but so many times when I feel smart, honestly, I feel like Peter. Because I just know there's times that I just don't get it. And I just love the Peter-isms that we find scattered throughout the New Testament. What do we know to be true about Peter? The guy is devoted to Jesus. In fact, I would argue that the depth of Peter's devotion is actually reflected in the strength of his objection. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Guys, he's the only one that's recognizing the social dishonor of this moment. Everyone else is button-lipped about this. Peter is the only one calling attention to it. Essentially, he's saying, Jesus, if anybody's washing feet today, it ain't gonna be you. But look at Jesus' response. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You can see in verse seven that Jesus is even acknowledging he's teaching them at a deeper level than they perceive. And Peter's like, okay, if you don't wash me, I, I don't have a share with you, then okay, can I just go ahead and get the full spa treatment? Like, <laughs> let's go. He's all in, right? Peter being a man of hyperbole, okay? 
Well, there's some, there's some significance to the word choice that we find in the text today. And I want to draw your attention to this next section. Uh, it says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you're a note taker or you're keeping up in this purple book, can you circle the words, if I, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That's significant. Now, we acknowledged earlier, coming into a house, you get your foot washed, usually by a slave, a servant, but your feet get washed. There's a departure from the moment of what we're experiencing here. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Super interesting. The question we need to observe in the text is not simply one of foot washing, but a question of who does the washing. We are now speaking beyond the ritual of getting our feet cleaned. That's why I think Jesus is saying in verse seven that there's more to this than you will understand right now. Guys, Jesus is saying very clearly to his disciples that he is the only one that can make them clean. Now, why is that? The problem that Jesus is addressing is not simply that we've been walking on the streets of Jerusalem and our feet have picked up some grime and Jesus doesn't want us to track this stuff into the house. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. No, the problem is not that the outside of us, in this situation, our feet have become dirty. The problem is that the inside of us has become filthy and that we need to be cleansed on the inside. My friends, we are spiritually unclean and we need to be washed in order for us to be able to stand in the presence of a holy God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So how is that accomplished? Well, again, if you're a note taker, I want to give you a couple things to write down. Number one, we need to acknowledge our need. Step one, acknowledge our need. Listen, when a person is willing to admit and to acknowledge their sin, you can work with them. But if they're not willing to acknowledge their sin, if they're not willing to recognize that they're dirty, they're stuck. Now, the problem with this is that none of us, none of us like to admit that we're dirty. I see this in my own life. I see this in the life of my family. I see this in the life of my loved ones. We see this in the Bible. We don't like having to admit that we're dirty. Let me give you some examples from scripture. Moses to Aaron. Moses is coming down Mount Sinai holding the Ten Commandments. He sees Aaron. Aaron, did you make that golden calf? Aaron's response to Moses, um, well, I threw gold in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. God to Adam in the garden. Adam, did you eat from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Did you eat from the forbidden tree? Um, the woman that you gave me, there was no prayer request. She took the fruit and gave me some. Listen, we don't like to admit when we're in the wrong. We don't like to admit our need to be cleansed. But the Bible is clear. Getting clean starts here. It starts with acknowledging our need. The Bible says you're going to have to do it. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But where does it start? 
If we confess, it starts with acknowledging that you're dirty. That's part one. We need to acknowledge our need. Part number two is we need to accept the deed. Accept the deed. Now, some people struggle as Peter did. Peter was really hesitant to allow Jesus to wash his feet. Why? He loved Jesus. He revered Jesus. He knew Jesus was teacher, rabbi. He's here. I'm here. Jesus, if anyone's washing feet today, it's not you. Peter was hesitant to allow the master to wash his feet. And some of you in this room might feel, hey, I'm not worthy to be washed. I don't deserve to be cleansed of my wrongdoing. And whether it be a a sense of pride or whether it be a deeply held sense of guilt, some people, maybe some in this room, are hesitant to receive the cleansing, the washing that Jesus freely offers us. But we all need it. We all need it. The gift of washing is free. Jesus offers it to you freely. It's yours. But even a free gift needs to be not only offered, but accepted in order for you to make it yours. We all need the cleansing that Jesus offers. We need to acknowledge our need. We need to accept the deed. Now in this passage, some people get stuck on verse 10. So let me just take a minute here. Uh, Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you can have no part of me. Peter then says, can I have the whole spa treatment? And Jesus basically says, listen, I don't need to wash all of you. He says, you have repented, you have believed, you are clean, right? Jesus says, I don't need to continually wash you. If you've repented and believed, you are saved. We don't need to go over that again and again and again. That's why this last section says, you do not need to wash the one who has bathed except for his feet, but you are completely clean. All right, let's keep moving forward. Verse 12. When he, had washed, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. But if I then, your teacher, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Man, there is so much here. All right, let me step out of John for a moment. I want to call your attention to another gospel. I'm going to look at, the, uh, look at uh, Luke 22, where Luke, as a gospel author, is talking about the exact same situation. Okay? In the upper room discourse in Luke 22, again, same setting, what we learn about when Luke talks about this upper room discourse is that there was an argument that broke out among the disciples. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest among them when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus steps into this argument and he says, wait a minute, guys, wait a minute. Who's greater? Jesus says, is it the one who sits at the table or is it the one who serves? And Jesus is asking a great question. It's one that we should wrestle with. Jesus is asking, what is is greatness? What is greatness and how is it measured? Is it power? Is greatness measured by your connections? Is it your wealth? 
Is it the value of your home? Is it the number of your homes? Is it the size of your 401k? Is that greatness? Is greatness measured by the number of people who serve you? Or is it measured by the number of people that you serve? What's super interesting to me is that Luke 22 doesn't mention the foot washing and John 13 doesn't mention the argument. But when you put them together, it becomes crystal clear why Jesus chose to make this profound example to his disciples at this very time in his ministry. Who will be the greatest? Jesus says, let me show you what greatness looks like. And he grabbed the towel and began to wash their feet. Jesus knows that he is standing on the doorstep of the most significant reversal of the idea of greatness that the world will ever see. Listen, Jesus is gonna save the world by becoming weak. We see all over the New Testament this idea of reversal. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. He will use the foolish to shame the wise. Um, the way to influence is to serve. The way to be happy is to seek out the happiness of others. We find that all over the teaching and all over the examples of Jesus. But my friends, as you think about greatness, just realize the world will tell you different. The world will tell you uh, greatness is measured in worldly things. And Jesus says, uh-uh, it's not. And my friends, we need to fill our minds with more of Jesus. Now let's make this practical. In the absence of dirt roads today, what does foot washing look like for us? What does foot washing look like for us? Well, I have to acknowledge that the utilitarian or the practical aspect of foot washing is somewhat lost in the absence of better footwear and paved roads. But is there a place for this still today? And I would say to you, the answer is yes. Now, if I can share a personal story with you, I've been to South Sudan a number of times. I've, I've been on a whole bunch of trips to go see our global partners out there. And on one of the trips to South Sudan, our trip leader, Michelle York, said to the team, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we wash the feet of the leaders of the church in Vietnam? And I thought to myself, great. That sounds awesome. I wasn't super filled with enthusiasm at the suggestion because to me, I've seen where these guys are stepping. These are people walking in sandals and dirt roads. And I probably felt a little bit of apprehension. But can I tell you that we lined up the leaders of the church and I'm in front of a man named William Duwap here. William is a roughly 80-year-old man in this photo. He's a former spear master. That's a, that's a witch doctor in their context. A former witch doctor, he converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ and became a follower of Jesus. And he became an incredible force for good in this village when he abandoned uh, being a spear master and embraced Christ. In fact, in an evangelistic setting, he was awesome because he would openly mock other spear masters in the village. It was fantastic. Well, I got to wash the very, very well-traveled feet of this man. And can I tell you that nothing could have prepared me for the holy intimacy that I experienced in that moment. The camera's facing away from me, but can I tell you that I had tears pouring down my face as I washed the feet of this man who has been such an agent for good and for the furtherance of the gospel in Vietnam. I had no idea how this would captivate me. Just this act of service was incredible. Michelle York, I know you're here this morning. I have learned so much from you 
In my trips to South Sudan, I have loved to serve alongside you. You have been an incredible leader and servant to our global partners. And I just want to say thanks because my life is better because I got to serve along you and watch how you lead and serve our partners. My life is different because I went and served, because I took a lowly position and have served our global partners, not just by making their feet clean in this moment, but by going back and serving our global partners. My life is different in such a good way because of that. So the question I want to ask you, church, is this. What else might foot washing look like in a modern context? As you wrestle with this and think through, what does this look like in Brentwood, Tennessee in 2023? What does the application of the concept of foot washing look like to you? Well, let me ask you. Where are there needs around you that you have not stepped into yet? Needs that you're aware of, but either because they're too lowly or too menial or you're pretty sure someone else will take care of it or perhaps you feel overqualified, someone else will get to it, or maybe in Williamson County fashion, you're just too busy. Translation, I don't treat this in my head as a priority because I've got these other things going on which in my head are more important. My friends, there are needs all around you, all around you. And the question is, where are you choosing to roll up the sleeves and engage in a need that you're aware of? Now, you might not be aware of needs, and if that's the case, I'm sure we can help you to find some. Kevin did a really good job this morning of educating you of some of the needs that this church is feeling. We're about to go next week from two services to three. And if you did the math on the screen, there is 80 people that we still need in order for our children to hear the gospel on Sunday morning. Wait a minute, I want to make sure you heard that. We need 80 more people so that our children can hear the gospel on Sunday morning. Guys, we need more. We need more, okay? This is a one place to serve. There are many. But I'm gonna ask each of you to look in your heart and ask the question, where am I serving? Where am I giving back? Where am I making a difference? Where am I stepping down into a lowly position, even if I'm overqualified, even if I'm too busy? Where am I rolling up the sleeves to make a difference, to serve the needs in a very practical way? My friends, it's a responsibility for all of us. Jesus says, this is an example. You need to do it to each other. This is right in the crosshairs of where we need to be in a church. And friends, we do it without fanfare. We do it without praise. You need to realize that you might get overlooked. You might not feel like you're, you're being acknowledged for the sacrifice you're making. You're not doing it for that. You're doing it because he's watching and because, it will, because of what it will do to you in here. I love reading about Tim Keller. When he spoke about this, he said, servanthood begins where gratitude and applause ends. If you're doing it for recognition or for feel good, just realize your heart's probably not in the right spot. We're doing this to give back. And the irony of all of this, and this was true in my life, I spoke to a woman this morning who just got back from Peru, Shailene, who went on her first missions trip, and she's like, Mike, I couldn't believe it. I went there to serve and to bless others, and I came home served and blessed. My friends, what's true when you step down and you serve other people is that you yourself will be blessed when you do it. Now look at this verse. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
It's not blessed are you if you acknowledge them, if you intellectually agree it'd be a good idea to meet this need. I think that's true. No, blessed are you if you step into the need and choose to make a difference. No action, no blessing. Our faith is an act of faith, my friends. All right, I don't want to come down on you like a heavy this morning, but I'm, I'm really challenged by this text and I want all of us to get in the game. Okay, because I know that when you get in the game, the rich blessing that you receive for doing so far outweighs the sacrifice that you feel like you're making in the moment. All right, one last observation in our text, and then we'll call it a day. Some of you this morning might be envisioning a need that you could step into, but you don't want to. Perhaps because it involves a person or an organization in your life whose feet you would never wash. Perhaps they've wronged you. Perhaps they've betrayed you, offended you, or you just feel in your head like, man, that person, that organization, they don't deserve my service. Well, if you're thinking to yourself, I would gladly serve food at the Nashville Rescue Mission. I would gladly restock the shelves at the food pantry. I would gladly become a 242 group leader, but don't ask me to serve that so-and-so because of what they did to me. If that's how you're feeling, I want you to see something in the text this morning. There are three places in our text today that refer to Judas Iscariot. Three separate places in the text. You know what's interesting in the text? Jesus is crystal clear that this guy is about to betray him. In fact, within a matter of hours of this dinner, it'll be Judas who is the reason why Jesus is arrested and tomorrow afternoon he will be killed. But you know what's interesting? There's nothing in the foot washing text that says that when he got to Judas, he said, "Mm -mm, not you. He washed the feet of everybody. He washed the feet of everybody. And can I ask you if Jesus can wash the feet of the man who will betray him, the man who will get him killed, then what's your reason for not engaging the needs of others, perhaps with whom you've been estranged or the one who has offended you. You see, if we're looking only at fulfilling and serving the needs of those around us who have been loyal to us, kind to us, faithful to us, you've got to realize that according to the text, you're coming nowhere close to meeting the mark that Jesus is calling us to. You see, Jesus himself washes everybody's feet, but you need to realize that every one of the disciples will let Jesus down in the next 24 hours. Every one of them will turn on Jesus. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. And all but one of them will abandon him when he goes to the cross, when the heat gets turned up and it gets hard. All of them. And yet we see Jesus washing the feet of everyone. Why? Because that's how it is with Jesus. If you believe in him, he puts his love on you and there is nothing that can dislodge it. It says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. Jesus doesn't love you because of X, Y, or Z. That's conditional. It doesn't say he loved them because because they earned it. That's conditional. It says, having loved them, he loved them to the end. The whole relationship with Christ is not because you're worthy, because you're holy, because you've earned it, or because you're perfect. It's because he is. It's because he loved us and served us with his life that we should then go and do likewise to our fellow man. And again, the dichotomy in all of this 
is that when we put others' needs ahead of our own, when we serve other people, when we step into a lowly position and simply serve our fellow man, we are blessed. We are blessed. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your example. Lord, in so many places throughout the Bible, you demonstrate a complete reversal of how we think. That the first would be last and the last would be first. That those who are lowly will be exalted. Lord, you came 2,000 years ago and you went to the cross on our behalf. You loved us, washed us, served us. And we're grateful for that. Lord, help us to be challenged by the message this morning. Help us to look inward to our own lives and look for that opportunity to see how we can leave here changed this morning. In your name we pray, amen.